Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and thanks for listening into the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by Reverend Dr. Natalie Wig Stevenson. Hello. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule. We were just talking about how busy life is before we start recording. So, Dr. Wig Stevenson directs the Contextual Education uh, Program at University of Toronto and teaches theology at Emmanuel College. Her current research dives delves into how ethnographic methods could help create theological conversations across church, academy, and everyday life. She's also interested in liturgical, feminist, and queer theologies, cultural theories of practice, aesthetics, pop culture, and decolonial. De- I can't say this. Say decolonizing this <laughs> ways of teaching that are decolonized, trying to move past our colonial. History. There you go. You didn't make it. me say the last hard word too. Pedagogies yep. is that pedagogies. It? Yeah. <laughs> Styles of teaching that are more collaborative. Right. Uh, tell us, tell our listeners about yourself, if you would. Sure. Well, um, I live in Toronto, so I'm maybe one of your few Canadian guests. Yeah. Um, and I live here with my um, my spouse, my husband, and my three daughters, all of whom. Um, are are filling our house. So if you hear if you hear sounds of yeah. and thudding, that's them coming home from the park today. Great, great. I'm uh, I'm recording from the office. I tried to do that record once from home with my daughter, and you know she's like randomly vacuuming in the middle yeah. of our my interview. <laughs> All my kids have shown up in various professional Zoom calls over the last few months. This is yeah. COVID reality. Yep, yep. Well, uh, tell us if you would. What has it meant to be for you a Christian uh, in in your in your past, and if anything's changed for you, sure. what that's like? Yeah, I think I mean, like a lot of Christians now, I've had somewhat of a hybrid, uh, if not pluralist, journey. Um, I became interested in faith as a child when I attended Catholic school, mostly because it was one of the safer schools in the neighborhood where mm-hmm. I grew up. Uh, one of the very few Protestants in that school. Um, and I think there, my imagination, my theological imagination was really cultivated and oriented towards mystery. Moved to, That was in the UK where I grew up. And then we moved to Canada when I was 11 years old. And I found myself searching for, for a way to connect to this God that I'd learned about in school. And I converted to a pretty evangelical form of faith in my mm-hmm. teen years, which was a lovely and nurturing place for quite some time. Yeah. Um, but then I... I uh, have, I mean, can I, can you really ever stop being a charismatic evangelical? I'm not sure, but I Mm. have certainly (laughs) moved away from those traditions and practices, um, especially after I went to seminary and really had that, that theological imagination expanded um, into, into new directions where I was able to discover God in unexpected ways, unexpected ways and really shift that relationship. Mm -hmm. But I still think that my roots are in those teenage years, the childhood years, 
which means having a very hybrid faith. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Has there been a spiritual practice that you've developed or you'd recommend others that's been meaningful for you over your life? Yeah, I mean, I can say what has become a spiritual practice in the last year or so. I mentioned that I have three daughters. They're Mm -hmm. two, four, and six years old. Um, And so I think that my spiritual practices have tended uh, in recent years towards silence. Uh, Oh, yeah. That that has been the the hunger of my soul has been uh, seeking places of silence with God. And so, you know, I can connect the lineage to the old sort of praise and worship music that shaped Mm -hmm. me and the um, Eucharistic faith that I think I moved into more in the early aughts. But these days it's getting up at 545 before the kids get up and rolling out a yoga mat, 20 minutes of yoga, and then a period of contemplative prayer. Um, that's usually shaped by some sort of ancient theological, te- ancient, um, you know, early church uh, yeah. readings that will just kind of shape and orient that prayer for me. I can only imagine how hard, I imagine that's why you're getting up so early to find <laughs> quiet with three little girls during COVID. Yes, and I can actually hear them coming in now. But there is that moment in the prayer, just occasionally when they wake up too early, I'll feel the little feet come like, you'll hear them coming down the stairs and then just feel one of them settle in beside me. And they've gotten enough used to mommy's prayer time that they notice that they're very quietly. Oh, <laughs> and they'll, just sort of, they'll put their head on my lap. Or It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's actually quite beautiful. Mm, great. Well, let's jump into... Uh, what I've been excited to talk to you about. So I don't know how long back I found an article on Sojourners that Natalie had written and kind of read her bio. I was like, I have never heard of this. I need to learn more about this. So Natalie, you, you just wrote, wrote a book on ethnographic theology. And I'm going to ask you to explain for me and for our listeners, like what in the world is ethnographic theology? This is so funny for me. In um, in my Sojourner's bio, I always put uh, that I, I'm the author of this book, Ethnographic Theology. And every time I do, I think, is anyone really going to be interested in that ac- <laughs> academic text? I'm the one person, are. okay? I'm the yeah, one person. one person. Um, yeah, so I wrote that book in 2014. Um, and I guess my interest in ethnography began in seminary when I took a class in liturgical theology. So this is sort of studying the history of liturgy, worship, and, and the contemporary practices. And I studied with someone, who, uh, Siobhan Garrigan, who is an incredibly creative liturgical theologian. I also studied how to do worship with her, actually, um, by being an intern for her in our campus chapel. Um, and in that class, we had to visit uh, a church that was not our own for four mm-hmm. consecutive weekends and study it. We studied sort of the economic and social uh, dynamics around the church. So I remember walking around the church and trying to count how many of different kinds of cars there were to get a sense mm. of what the economics of the neighborhood would yeah. be. And then attended the worship services and tried to socially analyze them and theologically analyze them. And it was so revolutionary to spend four weeks in a church uh, as a participant observer um, and realize that not just theological reflection, but theological construction could happen from that kind of a practice um, that was obviously more what we might think of as anthropological or sociological in nature. 
um, I'd only done theology using texts before. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden I was immersed in what we would call ethnography and coming up with ways of thinking theologically that I hadn't managed to do before. So that's where I got interested in ethnography. Then when I went to do my doctorate, um, I'd done this proposal, you know, as you do when you apply to a doctoral program, saying that I wanted to do some sort of an ethnographic study that I would then do some theological reflection with. And at some point in that process, one of my advisors said, right, right, but you're not just going to do ethnography and then reflect on it, right? You're going to do something more interesting than that. <laughs> and I had no idea what he meant when he said that, but as any doctoral student said, yes, yes, of course, I would never do something so boring as that. But the question really stuck with me and, and bubbled up and I began to, it's been, I guess, a decade long journey now of trying to think, what could or should theology be in the 21st century? Mm-hmm. How might we uh, reimagine how it should be done in light of the world that we're living in? And how might an ethnographic approach actually not just become you know, empirical material that we try to do something with, but actually reshape what theology is from the inside out. And so that's sort of been the passion project of mine for the last 10 years. So I'm kind of learning this on the fly with you. So as I understand ethnography, the basic gist is it's a scientific description of customs of individual peoples and cultures. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Like when you're in that church setting, you're recognizing or examining i'm not sure the right word of how those cultures or practices in that church kind of shape their theology is that fair yeah i mean i would say it yes that is fair (laughs) that is what some people using ethnographic methods for theological work do um at this point in the scholarly terrain there are so many of us and Mm -hmm. we're all tackling this in different ways so some people will go and do an, an empirical study that treats a church or, or a context as a culture, like an anthropologist would, and then, and then tries to unpack what they might call the implicit theologies at play mm-hmm. there. Others um, might try to make theological proposals for that context. So by studying what's happening on the ground, they can then actually say, here's what we should do in light of that for that community and the wider Christian communities that mm-hmm. might be interested in it. So I think ethnographic theologians, and again, we all call ourselves different things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, ethnographic theologians, um, they're interested in connecting theology to everyday life, but the ways in which we do that differ immensely. Um, and I think that's why it's such an exciting and generative field right now. I think we're asking questions that all theologians should be asking. Um, so we're just doing it for all of theology. <laughs> What are those questions? Not that they're listening, but (laughs) (laughs) what are those questions that you're asking that I'm curious? Yeah, so I mean, I think a big one is the question of authority and normativity. So, Mm, yeah, uh, ethnographic theologians are continually asked by, let's say, traditional or textual theologians, you know how how it, how is the empirical normative? How are you going to make normative claims? Why should this one small context matter for all of Christianity? Yeah. And that's a huge question post-modernity of how, of how we think about authority as shaping theology. What has authority for contributing to a theology text? You know, the, the old Wesleyan quadrilateral of mm-hmm. reason, tradition, experience, and scripture. Um, those categories are so filled out and complicated now. And so ethnographic theologians are trying to say, 
how do we how do we bring these pieces together? What's their weight? How do we actually study experience so that it's not overly subjective? Um, and then how do we bring that all together in a way that we can draw normative claims out of it? Anthropologists and sociologists have their own ways of navigating authority, validity, all the rest of it. Theologians have their own ways and mm -hmm. actually both have the capacity to listen to each other uh, and influence each other, I think. Interesting. So it, as I understand, I kind of felt this tension between, or, or I kind of recognize this tension in our broader culture between these empirical modes mm -hmm. and theological modes, which you kind of spoke to. And it seems like, in my understanding at least, please correct me if, if I'm wrong here, that this has really kind of been, modernity has kind of heightened those or, or even created them maybe to some extent. How, how does, it, it seems like eth, ethnography, I can't say the word, ethnographic theology seeks to kind of bridge that gap. Is that fair? That is fair, yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of scholars, ethnography is bridging that gap, trying to treat the empirical with much more careful, contoured analysis than has, mm -hmm. has been done up until this point. Um, and the question of the bridging of the gap is one that ethnographic theologians will really debate, um, mm. whether we're bridging it, combining it, integrating it, whatever it is we're doing. So I can talk about, probably talking about my own work is the easiest. Yeah, go um, ahead, please do. So, so in, my, in my work, what I'm trying to think about doing is taking what I would call field work. So that's what would traditionally be thought of as perhaps ethnographic data or, you know, what you've, um, traditional language would be gathered, but yeah. I, I would say what you've co-produced with the people in your field work site as the sort of illuminative um, work that's coming out of that. And bringing that into conversation with say historical Christian traditions, contemporary uh, approaches, practices of critique, philosophy, all these parts that have always been a part of theology, but traditional approaches to theology have always assumed a particular hierarchy as to how they should be arranged. So mm. some understanding of, if this weren't a podcast, you would see that I'm doing scare quotes <laughs> around capital T, the yeah. capital T tradition, right? There's the tradition and that has all the authority. And then you can play with the tradition, play with scripture mm -hmm. using narratives from the ground, but they would never be given the same authoritative weight. Well, post-modernity, the capacity to give authority to something like that has been pretty dismantled. Yeah. Um, in fact, anything that would be in automatically imbued with that level of authority just doesn't hold anymore. And this is something I think traditional textual theologians just aren't acknowledging. You can't just say something's true because Calvin said it. You have to tell me why. What? What are you talking about? I know, I know. It's so <laughs> upsetting to some people. I should. I don't know why I always use Calvin as my example because he's such a hot button. But well, usually <laughs> it's Luther we're banging on. So good, Calvin. Well, you know, I was about to say Luther, but it's always going to be some reformer, right? In, mm -hmm. In Protestant conversations. So, and that's the authority people allude to without even thinking about it. We're picking on a lot of people because we said, you already mentioned, you already mentioned the Methodist, Wesley, you know, Calvin, <laughs> Luther. Yeah, who else can we get? Aquinas. But yeah. we, but I'm not picking on them. So this is the difference. This is why I think the conversational ap approach has such mm -hmm. potential to it, that we get caught up in these battles in theology. Mm -hmm. 
can tend to not be very kind people, which I find quite upsetting. But we caught up, get caught up in these, these battles where it's like you either are pro-Calvin or anti-Calvin, mm-hmm. pro-queer theology or anti-queer theology, pro-feminism or anti-feminism. And what I'm more interested in doing is bringing all of these pieces into a kind of conversation where we can actually you know, as like a radical feminist theologian, I might still engage with Luther. It's not like Luther's dead to me. I can draw him into this conversation in in creative ways, but always doing so by being very careful to to name the authority that he has in that moment to speak. Hmm. That's good. Now, something you write about in and I should I should say this article I read from you, what's really going on ethnographic theology and the production of theological knowledge. You talk about, or at least as I understand it, theology being a cultural practice. Can you dive into that a little bit? Sure. It's really, uh, it's fun to me that that's the article you, you picked up because that's one that I wrote. Um, it's, it's perhaps the only publica- uh, scholarly publication I have that's not in a theological journal. So that oh, was a project I, I did with a group group of um, anthropologists, hmm. uh, what we might call more interpretive anthropologists, the people who use more arts-based approaches to doing anthropology. Um, and they were doing an issue on the cross-disciplinary migration of ethnography. So the way in which the last decade or so, multiple scholarly disciplines have started using these ethnographic methods that were that were created by anthropology developed in sociology, but really had their home bases there. And now across, across the university, people are using ethnography. So I was writing the theology article for them and um, it was just a really generative fun conversation. But at the heart of anthropology is the study of culture. And so to say that theology is a cultural practice is to, from my perspective, to acknowledge that God is at work in everything. God is at work in culture and theology isn't just something we think or write it's something we do being a type of cultural practice kind of separates theology from being um this sort of like illuminated speech bubble above our head that's being poured into us by the holy spirit um and then you know held together through time by a golden thread of of truth, um, but actually acknowledges that theology is always beginning in daily life. It's always shaped by the communities of which we are a part. It's always absolutely permeated by our own personal narratives, even though most of them don't make it into the theological text. It is, it's what we do on a daily basis from the person who's scholarly trained, the person who's just trying to navigate what to do in their faith this week, the person who's trying to figure out what to do in their family this week. These are all theological modes of thinking, speaking, and doing. Can I go back to that? I'm trying to process this as we talk. Can I go back to the idea about authority and normativity? Sure. Because I, I think that's, I was just talking about this with one of my, my worship leader and talking about how like, like the Bible for the vast majority of people doesn't really represent a, an authority. And we're talking about like someone like Andy Stanley who like in a message won't necessarily just say like the Bible says he'll be like, Hey, I want to tell you this ancient story. And like the compelling part is like the message itself. That's kind of meant to be the authority. Is that in a sense kind of what we're getting at here where that authority normative normativity has shifted away from the text itself. In some ways, I think what has shifted is that anything can have authority. 
Well, yeah. Nothing can automatically have authority. And there, there are gains and losses to that. Certainly. Yeah. My students who are all incredibly progressive, uh, my, my Christian students, yeah. um, in <laughs> training to be one of the most progressive dom- denominations in the world, you know, they, they come to me and take these sort of radical feminist queer classes and they, they have the sense that, you know, if you want to be a radical progressive, you need to throw the Bible away. And they're always quite shocked when I tell them that the Bible has absolute authority in my life. <laughs> and I'm not saying it just to mess with them. Yeah. Um, but what I want them to think about, what I would want any Christian to think about is you can say the Bible has absolute authority in my life or the Bible has no authority in my life. To me, those are both pretty meaningless statements. Hmm. I want to know what you mean when you say the Bible has authority okay. or when you say it doesn't. Right? The Bible, when you say that, do you mean that it's a book, a collection of books? Is it something that God poured into somebody's ear or is it something that God is speaking through to us now? Is it um, true? And what on earth would true mean in this context? Yeah. Is it factually, scientifically true? I would say absolutely not, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. reduce it to metaphor yeah. or allegory either. It's, um, it's something that we, I think as Christians, live in and live out of and in a sense perform in our daily lives. Right? We become shaped by it. We become conduits for it. And that's how it has absolute authority for me. There's no section that I will ever be. I mean, I should never say never, but at this moment in time, I would say there is no section of that Bible, no matter how horrific I find it to be. And there are some horrors yeah. in there. There is no section of it I would cut out. There's That's no cutouts in my Bible. My work as a Christian is to stand with it, to stick with it, to stay in the trouble, to use Donna Haraway's phrase. It's to wrestle with it um, into the life of the divine. That's, so That's what I mean when I say it has authority, but no one can tell you that it should have that kind of authority for well, you. Thank you. And that's where I'm a postmodern. <laughs> I love the answer because that's one of the things I think about. I always ask people later on in the interview, like, what do you see church or Christianity in 500 years? And, and I wonder, like, what, how are people going to, seeing the Bible as like this authoritative text that we're talking about, to me, that has a, a shelf life, but kind of what you're talking about, I can see that having some lasting power, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we have to work with the idea that what authority is changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And then we become responsible as Christians to grapple with that in each age. Well, I want to I want to sh- bring it down here from our, your heady intellectualism here. <laughs> heady, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I love it. Um, heady for me, at least, we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> what is... One of the things that why I was kind of interested in having this conversation with you, because I was just thinking about like the implications for pastors and churches. And you like you have this one quote in your article from this author, Tanner, kind of talks about like liberating theologians from modernist assumptions and inviting them to share into a vision of Christian practice that's more porous and fluid with wider social practices. To me, I I feel like this is one of the things that and kind of I'll mix two questions here that pastors often run into, especially pastors uh, who tend to be, you know, more liberal quote unquote from liberal seminaries and come into like, in my context, mainline Protestant churches who are kind of all over the map. And this kind of this tension between, you know, being 
you being a liberal, the pastor being a liberal, more liberal leaning theology, and these church members who often are very conservative. So as I understand this, this approach to theology, it really, it feels like it's a, it's a way to mesh the two together. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's fair. I mean, the flip side of the question is, um, what do conservative pastors do when they are, when they go into liberal congregations, which is, which also happens um, in, you know, in the Toronto context, that certainly happens. Um, And, and I think in, in either direction, what I love about these approaches to theology is, is the possibility to converse across difference. An ethnographic approach is going to be primarily interested in deep, empathic, non-judgmental listening. That will be the first. That, that's the first. <laughs> that's, that's at the top. That's what matters most. And that's going to be at the core of any, of any practice that someone's pursuing. There's a great book um, by Mary Michelle Clark. Mary Clark Michelle, I'm getting it backwards. Um, Ethnography as a pastoral practice. It's a great oh. tool for pastors who want to think about how to use some basic ethnographic methods in, in their pastoral work of how do you listen to your congregants so you can hear what matters to them? How do yeah. you co-create with them a vision for this community, um, which, you know, tactically speaking, actually gets their buy-in rather than you just imposing something right. upon them? Right. Um, how do you let them know they've been listened to. Right? Ethnography is filled with these tools and not in a sneaky, insidious way, but, you know, I would say doing ethnography has shaped my own capacities for listening. It's shaped my own empathy towards others. It's shaped the way I'm able to entertain and honor someone who thinks and feels very differently in the world than I do. Um, and so taking on those practices also for the pastor gives them a sort of <laughs> an ascesis. It's a, it's a, a, a purging of, you know, their own struggles to encounter difference yeah. as well. And that's why I think it's helpful. It's a formative tool for, for the pastor themselves. And then also for list, really, truly listening to the congregants. I like that you kind of mentioned pastoral care because that's what I most resonated with when I read the first part of your article, you mm-hmm. share the story about going into, what was it? A, a, a nursing home, nursing home, hearing a story of a woman who shared what was it? A, she had a vision of um, a, a near-death experience, yeah. a vision of heaven. And as I remember, you're writing about like trying to analyze like what really happened here, but also trying to move beyond that to like, what does this mean about this person, her context, what she might be going through? And to me, that speaks to pastoral care mm-hmm. more than trying to analyze like, did this really happen? Right, but I don't think theology often has the the capacity to grapple with that, right? Yeah. Like we can talk about traditions and normativity, but really like the most um, sort of respectable academic traditional theology actually isn't going to be able to do anything with her narrative of, this isn't the tension between the empirical and the theological so much as the tension of like, can theology actually entertain supernatural experiences or does it have to sideline her story as just the, confused mutterings of an old woman. I want to entertain the possibility that she really did die and go to heaven and Mm. meet her mother there and spend some time in a field with Jesus and then come back to tell the story. My academic training doesn't give me a capacity to actually believe that and draw actual normative claims out of it. So I'm going to grapple, I think, for the rest of my career with 
with what to do with that. Because I think many scholars have those kinds of supernatural experiences. I do. So how can I get those into my work? They matter. They matter for theology. Is that because like, like theologically we don't have definitions for that kind of thing or outside it's outside the box? It's um, I think a key reason, and I talk about this in the article is the divide in academic studies between theology and religious studies, right? There's this divide uh, mm-hmm. of theologians are the ones who are training ministers religious studies folks are sort of like objective. This is a massive caricature, but um, increasingly when seminaries aren't all that needed, (laughs) as theologians want to know, we still have a place in the university. Frankly, it pays my mortgage and we'll send my kids to school. So I, you know, we have to defend ourselves and we do it by trying to shift ourselves away from the supernatural as much as we can. Um, But I think we give too much when we do that and increasingly what's interesting to me is in anthropology anthropologists are increasingly uh, accepting the veracity of supernatural experiences and not writing about them like false consciousness as if the person didn't understand it but actually trying to write as if the spirits are in the room this is a whole new area in anthropology that i think is so exciting because they're willing to make the kinds of quote-unquote normative claims about the spiritual realm that most academic theologians would panic if they were asked to me wow yeah which is so, why i've been hanging out with anthropologists more lately <laughs> well, let me ask you one other question here and this is an analogy that came to mind this morning when i was on my walk thinking about kind of this interview someone shared with me the story of like going on a walk with their kids and like their daughter will find a pretty rock and pick it up and hold it and the rock obviously means nothing to the parent um but the analogy would be like is part of pastoral care from an ethnographic position being like this, you know, holding this rock for these people, even though it really means nothing to you, has no in, intrinsic value to you, but saying, I'm going to love and care for this person and value this rock as much as if it was a, a diamond ring or a chunk of gold. Oh, I think that's the starting point, but I think it's really beginning to love the rock yourself. Oh, wow. Perhaps even absent uh absent the love your child has for it i mean certainly that would be the starting place right seeing the wonder that your child has in that rock and Mm -hmm. i say this as a mother who has rocks all over her house (laughs) that the children have collected and accidentally carried one of them in my purse to a conference in europe i mean like rocks occupy my children's imagination immensely um but then i think the work is not just tolerating them and then not just even loving them because they love them, but actually beginning to love them myself. Wow. That's, we should leave it there. I think that's good. (laughs) Does it get any better than that? (laughs) Yeah. Let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. Sounds good. All right, we're back with Reverend Dr. Natalie Wiggs Stevenson. So, Natalie, you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you like. But if you're Pope for a day, oh, is there one thing you'd like to accomplish? Accomplish? Geez, that's a lot of pressure on a person. I mean, if I were <laughs> if I were Pope for a day, I think something cataclysmic has happened to get me there, and so I should either spend that day praying intercessions for the world <laughs> or on 
my knees in Thanksgiving. Whatever would get me to be Pope is whatever I would want to do with the day. So, I mean. I like that answer. That's a good answer. Very thoughtful. <laughs> yeah. That's, if I'm Pope, something's gone terribly wrong, most likely, or, or terribly right, which has nothing to do with well, Let's think the terribly right. Let's think the terribly right. I don't know you at all, but I'll, let's just pretend terribly right. Do you have a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? I would like to bring back to life Marcella Altus Reed. She she died a few years ago. I think she was 58. Um, She's just an absolute pioneer. Um, She, (laughs) technically, I guess she's in the area of queer queer theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, her, Her most influential book was Indecent Theology. Um, it's the most brilliant theological mind, I think, of the 20th century. Um, she brings together queer critique, feminist critique, decolonial critique, and she's looking at all the ways that um, Christianity is completely shaped by heteropatriarchal colonial capitalist mm. foundations. Um, that's a big mouthful, I know, but her capacity to cut through all of that and create a vision of God that is so deeply offensive um, to most Christians was perhaps the most inspiring. I wouldn't be a theologian without her. I would. Wow. Her death was a huge loss to the community. Wow. I would bring her back in a heartbeat. No, I'm just thinking as you say that, like, I, that's what I'm like, sw- I'm like swimming. I'm like, I'm representing like, you know, hetero, you know, as a white, <laughs> straight white guy. That's like, that's what I'm swimming and living in. Yeah. So, oh, trust me, we is. all are. Yeah. <laughs> we, I mentioned this kind of earlier, but if you, what do you think like history will remember us for in 500 years? Uh, hoping that um, we're, that the world is around in 500 years, I would say, and certainly the human species. I'm not sure if that's short-sighted or just, you know, we've never, I refuse to say the word unprecedented, but mm-hmm. this is such an odd and strange moment. And I hope in 500 years, Christians are not, I hope, I hope the impact we've had after COVID is to live into the possibilities of sort of a, a reconfigured set of possibilities, I guess. I mean, it's not like I want the world to collapse. Please don't take that away from this. But <laughs> I think we are seeing, we're seeing just the problems with so many of the systems that shape our lives. Yeah. And so many of those systems have shaped the privilege of Christians in the West. I hope coming out of COVID, we can f- find a new way to follow Jesus. So you said you're from the UK, right? Yeah, I was, I was born there. I'm actually, I'm technically British. I live in Canada. I was in the States for a long time. I was thinking about like the Suez crisis. Yeah. As I understand it was in the 1950s and that was kind of like the. So embarrassing. If I could Google it quickly without you hearing the keys type, I would. <laughs> well, the gist was like, I was thinking about this week, like, as I understand it, that was like kind of when the UK was exposed as no longer being a world power. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, is COVID going to be like the thing that really exposes the United States as no longer being like really a world power, or kind of the preeminent nation? Did you not all know that you weren't the preeminent nation anymore? <laughs> we don't know that. Yeah, we don't okay, know but that. I guess COVID's going to let you guys yeah. know it. <laughs> we still think we're it. Yeah, um, I mean, you certainly have a lot of influence on the global scene. This is true. And uh, 
are we going to talk about COVID in the U.S.? My heart breaks for your no, country we right don't, now. No, we need to I keep I can't this tell positive. you how many of my American friends have asked if they can come and live in my basement. Yeah. And have been asking for years. No, that's really the purpose of this podcast, just to try to get to know you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I see. In. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, last question, and this is I'm springing this on you, but I, I'm curious. So you, it sounds like you work with folks who are becoming pastors and training for ministry to some mm-hmm. extent. To me, I've just been reading articles about this like and experiencing it myself. Like this is such a impossible, I don't, it, that seems too big a word, yet also not, time of ministry. And I, my mind struggles to fathom what ministry will look like for pastors and church leaders after this time. Do you just have any thoughts on your own? I mean, advice? don't, don't, don't try to sing too fast. <laughs> That'd be the first one. Um, so I know we're all grieving that we're not going to be able to sing together when we return, but mm-hmm. don't jump on that too fast. But on a more serious note, you know, um, as a, as a professor, I've spent the summer trying to, uh, equip myself with sort of the skills and the capacities to do online teaching, which I've never done before. Mm-hmm. And to do that, I haven't just read stuff on, you know, higher ed and digital learning. I've read stuff on like how you do webinars and, yeah. you know, the sort of learning design way outside of the academy. And there's so much that I've learned from really a, a wide understanding of of how you design for how you design what you're doing for how people actually learn. And I think the first stage of COVID uh, church was move everything you already do online. Right. The second stage was sort of like, holy cow, no one can do Zoom for that long. Make everything shorter. <laughs> yeah. Um, the third, fourth, fifth stages have to be, what are we doing instead? We've been grappling with Sunday yeah. morning versus hockey and football practice for so long online church makes the capacity of like 10, 15 minute meetings once a day. Like there's so many possibilities we haven't thought about when Mm -hmm. people can gather in an online space. Um, The environmental impact is very exciting to think about the the ways in which church could become more responsible in online settings um, to being stewards of creation. But I would say really getting into some of these, um, I'm trying to look at this book on my bookshelf. Design for How People Learn is a book that I found incredibly helpful. Oh. It's not an academic text. It's not. It's about just how do how do people learn? How do people experience um, their participation in a digital environment? Right. That that would be incredibly helpful for pastors to just do a little bit of training around what should an online experience be for people. Yeah. It's not just starting to use Facebook or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to one podcast from Kerry Newhoff. He's, I think he's Canadian. Have you heard of him? <laughs> he's Canadian and I haven't. Can you believe it? <laughs> he's evangelical. He's, um, but one of his podcasts, he interviewed a YouTuber, I think, uh, just because, or they talked about like learning from YouTubers about how to produce yeah. content. Yeah, these are watch. the places we need to be looking. Who who already has a stake in the online game and what are they doing? That's mm-hmm. the, you know, I know some of my colleagues are recording their 45-minute lectures and putting them online. Yeah. No one's going to watch that. It's not going to happen. It's three to five-minute clips, YouTube videos, mixing of different media. I think the possibilities of like, I know one one minister who is looking into having her whole congregation visit an online church once a month that is not theirs. So the fourth Sunday of every month, let's say they go to a church in Africa or they go to a church in 
somewhere in Latin America, like just a, a church that they would never have been able to attend um, before to have those sort of widened cultural experiences that aren't otherwise possible to learn from where Christ, Christianity is actually vibrant right now outside of North yeah, America. Yeah. All right. Where can people find out more about you? Well, I have a book coming out, a new book coming out next year uh, with CM Press. It'll be early in the year. It's called Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art. And it's trying to take, uh, I guess, the work I did in ethnographic theology to the next level. It's weaving together all these disparate pieces into one large theological, systematic theological narrative. It's Mm -hmm. memoir, systematic theology, ethnographic work, historical contemporary. It's everything thrown together. Uh, into one big melting pot and attempting to do that in an artful way. So that's look for me there early next year. Awesome. Say the publisher again. I think we're kind of fuzzy. No, okay. It's SCM Press and it's called Transgressive Devotion. Well, that's all I have. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, Really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully I learned a little bit about ethnographic theology and hopefully our listeners got a piece of it too. Um, So blessings and peace to you and your your life with your family and uh peace be with you okay thanks you too thanks for joining us on the future christian podcast to learn more about lauren or the podcast visit future-christian.com but hey before you go do us a favor subscribe to the podcast and leave a review It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks, and go in peace.